Let's, let's come to our God. Father, we, uh, as always, we, we turn to you, the Lord of this word, the one who's given us this word. Uh, these ancient words that are just as relevant for us today, just as pertinent to our lives. And the stories that we read of these men and women of old uh, have so many lessons to teach us about who you are, about who we are, and how we need to follow you. And, and so we just want to uh, not just only acknowledge you, uh, we, we want to ask for your wisdom. We want to ask that you would teach us. And as we open the pages of Scripture and look at the, the, the words themselves, it's my prayer that you would change our hearts, that you would change our minds, that you would convict us of sin, that you would convict us of things in our lives where we're not following you and we're not being obedient, and teach us to be men and women after your own heart. I pray that you would... Um, loosen my tongue is that the word i'm looking for lord but uh, I, I seem to be just tripping over my tongue today and i just pray that you would uh, help me to communicate your word uh, because it is true and, and you have things to teach us right now so please bless this time as we continue to seek you amen so at the beginning of first samuel chapter eight we, we find that in between the, the 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 end of chapter seven and this verse that starts chapter eight we've skipped over samuel's whole life almost. Uh, he, he's starting his ministry in chapter 7. He's been called as a judge, as a prophet, as a priest, as, a, uh, uh, as, a, as a, uh, one of the judges of Israel as well. And when we come to 1 Samuel 8, we come to the end of that period in which he's serving. And we discover that he's become old. He's appointed two of his sons to judge Israel, but they were corrupt leaders. Uh, we're told that they were uh, given to bribes uh, and, and they didn't follow in the integrity of Samuel. And, and so the people decide that they want a king. It should be pointed out that their desire to have a king wasn't wrong in and of itself for, for a couple reasons. Number one, we just read in the book of Judges what, happens, what happened when Israel didn't have a king, right? And, and it just kept on spiraling into this chaos. And so Judges leads us to the point to say, this is something that we should look forward to. And also because in Deuteronomy, God had promised them at one point in their history, he would bring a king. And so there was also already prophecy that, that this was going to take place. The desire itself to have a king was in, its, in and of itself wasn't wrong, but their request has a pro, is a problem for three reasons. First, it was a problem because of the motivation that was behind the request. Twice in chapter 8, verses 4 and 20, we see that they demand and say, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The second time they repeat it, their, their motives are even clearer than that. They say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the problem was not actually having a king because Moses had already prophesied that a day would come when Israel would have human kings. The first problem was that they wanted Israel to be like all the other nations. And this is a serious problem because when God blessed Abraham and God made promises to Abraham, the goal was that Israel was going to be a blessing to all of these nations, not the other way around, that they would become like the nations. God wants the nations to see Israel and say, we want to be like that. That's what we're called to be and we want to know this God. And Israel was asking for the opposite of that. The second problem is that they've forgotten God's promise. 
And you see, they're looking for a king so that he'll go out and he'll fight all their battles for them. They're looking for a king so that he'll lead them and do all the work that they've been called to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 3, God had told them that, that they didn't need to panic. They didn't have to be afraid. They didn't have to dread their enemies because the Lord would go with them and He would fight, with, fight against their enemies. Even those, those nations that had chariots, the Israelites were able to go in there and they were told that, that you can conquer the land because God's given it to you. And, and, and over and over and over again, what did God promise them? I will be with you. Their God, Yahweh, is the one who would give them victory. But here they've specifically stated that they want a human king to do that for them instead. Which leads us to the third problem. You see, in the system that the Lord had set up for them, the system where they made a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, they said, he, you're our king, Lord. We, we will serve you as our king. And the covenant that they made was between a king and his people. But now they've rejected that plan. And once again, they've rejected God's story. And so, what you'll find as you read First and Second Samuel is that God is going to demonstrate the kind of king that Israel really needs. The kind of king that He originally intended for them when the time was supposed to come. Over chapters, over chapters 8 through 12, He's going to show them what these royal priorities should look like. What makes a good and godly king? In chapters 13 through 16, the Israelites are going to discover what happens when the king is just like what they requested, like all the kings of the other nations. And what happens when their nation, when Israel, becomes like all the nations. And we start to see that cycle happen all over again that we saw back in Judges. But then throughout the remainder of 1 and 2 Samuel, God is going to teach us what it looks like when Israel's king rules under God's sovereignty. And this is what God's intention was for Israel. That, that He would rule as their king and their human kings would operate under the sovereignty of God their king. We'll spend most of the time that we have left on that second section, but let's work through all of that together. Uh, first of all, chapters 8-12. through 12. God demonstrates the the royal priorities of a good and godly king. And I'm gonna, we're going to fly through these chapters. I'm just going to point out some highlights and then we're going to stop uh, as we get a little further along. You see, after the people demanded a human king, God warns them and explains to them there's going to be a cost for this. This is what's going to happen when the king comes. Now, I'll be honest with you. If I was picking the man that would be their first king, how would you, how would you approach it, by the way? They ask for a king and God says, eh, it's not going to end well for you. You know, the, these are going to be the consequences of it. And they said, we want a king anyway. We don't care what you say. We want a king. How would you approach that? Who would you give to them? No names. <laughs> You'd pick somebody and say, oh, I'll show them, right? That's kind of where my mind goes first. You know, I'll, I'll teach them what, what it's going to look like. But, you know, that's not what God does. You see, after the people demand a human king, God warns them. He explains the cost. And, and God in His grace provides them a king. But you see, God's not sitting on the sidelines through this episode cheering for them to fail. As you watch this unfold, God, God, doesn't, God doesn't choose a man that He knows is going to fail and says, ah, you know, I'm going to give them that guy because that's going to really give them what they deserve. No, God, God sets Saul up with everything that he possibly needs to succeed. He doesn't raise up a man that has been particularly designed to teach these people a lesson. 
Their motives and choices that they've made are going to lead down a dark trail. But even though God has warned them what, what their demand is going to eventually bring, He's going to demonstrate what His priorities are by setting up their first king to succeed. God is going to give their first king every opportunity to rule under God's kingship and thus be the kind of leader that Israel needs if he so chooses to be. First, in chapters 9-12, through 12, we see that God made his guidance available to the king. There's some moments through these chapters that uh, you, you might look at Saul and you might kind of raise your eyebrows a little bit when you see some of the things that he does. Because you see, Saul's chosen. He's anointed. Samuel comes to him in private first and, and he says, you were anointed to be the king. And Saul, Saul's first response is, who, me? If you read the end of Judges, do you remember which tribe got obliterated almost? It was the tribe of Benjamin, right? And that's the tribe that God chooses their king from. And so Saul looks at it and goes, I'm from the least of the tribes of Israel. I'm, the, I'm from the least of the clans. I'm the least of my clan. And you're choosing me? And so as he starts out, um, you know, Saul's really questioning whether he's really supposed to be the guy. But um, not only does he question it, he avoids it. He doesn't talk about it when he has the opportunity. He doesn't jump at the opportunity to be the king. He's shocked that God would choose him, so much so that when Saul is proclaimed king and they have their big party and say, Saul's the man, he's been chosen, where do they find him? He's hiding in the baggage. He's, He's out among the baggage. And they have to go get him and bring him in before they say, long live the king. But the Lord graciously comes along Saul, and that's what we see over these next few chapters. We see this person that's timid, that doesn't necessarily want the job, that hasn't pursued the job, that's surprised that God would pick him, and, and God graciously brings him along and gives Saul everything that he needs, and he guides him along. He starts by affirming his call through some very specific signs to confirm that he's the man. Along the way, the Spirit of God comes among, along, uh, uh, upon Saul. And in chapter 10, verse 9, we're told that God gave him another heart. Then Saul started prophesying with the prophets. God's working in his life to give him the reassurance that he needs, to give him the courage that he needs. More than this, he also receives a copy of his rights and duties as king. That probably refers to a command that was given in Deuteronomy where the king was supposed to write down the law. And so this portion of the law was given to Saul so that he would know what he needs to do to obey this God. And so Saul is given a very unique privilege in those days. They didn't just have a printing press that they could go to, did they? Not everybody had a copy of the Bible. And so Saul is given his own personal copy of a portion of the Scripture. And so now he not only is empowered with the Spirit of God, but he is also being guided by the Word of God. And by the end of chapter 11, Saul has again been empowered by the Spirit of God. He wins his first victory and he's shown mercy to those Israelites who despised him because some of the men came along along and said, "Eh, we're not so sure about this guy. And they didn't treat him with the respect that, that normally should have been his due. And so when they achieve their first great victory, some of the people of Israel come along and say, let's kill those guys because they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And Saul says, no, no. We're, gonna, we're not going to have any more bloodshed today. And, and he shows mercy to those who had despised him before. And we're told that all the people rejoiced greatly. And so when we come to the end of chapter 11, we find that God has set up Saul for success. He's given him everything that he needs to rule under God's leadership and to do it well. God gave Saul the guidance he needed. And throughout all of this, God demonstrates the royal priorities of what a good and godly king is. 
He sets him up for success. And for a time, this first king ruled with those priorities intact. However, there's something else that you need to know about 1 Samuel. Uh, the narrative of 1 Samuel is, is what we would call a tragedy. Over chapters 13 through 16, the Israelites are going to discover what happens when their king is like all the other kings of the nations. They're going to discover what happens when Israel becomes like all the other nations. And here we read about Saul's royal disloyalties. Uh, I've asked Andrew Vickers to read a portion of, from 1 Samuel 13 for us this morning, and so we're going to turn our attention to our Scripture reading. Uh, if, if you'd go ahead and stand at this time, uh, let's stand together in honor of God's Word. But uh, as the scene begins, an old problem has come back. Uh, we've met the Philistines before, and the Philistines have mustered to fight Israel. And again, they've, they've come with their chariots, they've come with horsemen, they've come with what's called a multitude of troops. And so Samuel appointed a time for a sacrifice, and Saul was commanded to wait seven days until the appointed time. And then Samuel, the priest of God, would offer the sacrifice before the people went out to battle. And we read in chapter 13, verses 8 through 14, if Andrew, if you would read that passage for us. Thank you. You may be seated. You see what happened? We're, we're told right before this that the people were, were trembling. And, and so as time passes, Saul's army starts to, to scatter. The, the people start to peel off, and Saul's watching all this. He's, he knows the forces that he's up against, even some more of the chariots that the people had fled from before. And what they needed was a leader who would challenge them like Joshua had to be strong and courageous. They needed a leader who would beckon the people to trust the Lord, to follow and obey Him, and they would lead in obedience. But instead, what happens? He panics. Yeah, he was scared. Instead, he, he panics, and, and after years of victories, after years of having received God's guidance, after years of watching God work and watching how God had set him up for success and watching how God had given him all these tools to be the king that he was supposed to be. Instead, he panics 
And after all these years of victory, Saul was disloyal first by disregarding the boundaries that God had set up for him. And you see, within Israel, God had set up certain leaders within the land. Uh, we all know about prophets. They were called to preach God's word. Uh, sometimes the prophets served in different roles. There were kings that served as prophets. There were priests that served as prophets. And we know about priests. Priests were the one that made the sacrifices. They served at the tabernacle. Later on, they're going to serve at the temple. These were the ones that were mediators between God and men. And they, they acted on behalf of the Israelites. But, um, but the priest was not to be a king, and the king was not to be a priest. Those duties were to be separated under the laws of Israel. God in His grace had included Saul among the prophets, but the duties of sacrifice and mediation were, were by law the responsibility of the priests. Much later in the history of Israel, there's going to be another king that's going to try to offer incense there at the tabernacle. Do you remember what happened to him? Turned into leprosy. You know, he, he, he couldn't run fast enough out of the temple because, because a judgment had come upon him. And here's Saul, uh, and, and he's doing that same thing. The duties of sacrifice and mediation were not his. And so in Saul's panic, not only does he offer the peace offerings, and I'll have to look this up. Maybe they were allowed to offer peace offerings because those were more of a fellowship event. I'd have to check on that one. Or maybe somebody here knows and you can let me know after the service. But the burnt offering in particular, which that passage as we were reading it, um, mentions a few times that he offered the burnt offering. He offered the burnt offering. He offered the burnt offering. This is what in Leviticus was called the whole offering. The burnt offering. Everything was burnt up and given to the Lord. It was an incredible sacrifice. But it was the priest, the high priest, that was supposed to offer that. And the text uh, is uh, very particular that Saul offered the burnt offering. He feared the people more than he feared God. He feared the people more than his king, Yahweh himself. And so what he does is he usurps the role of the priest and he offers the sacrifices. Saul offers the burnt offering. When Samuel shows up, he, he confronts him for his sin. Notice that, that uh, he says, what, what have you done? What have you done, Saul? And, and Saul first, what's the first thing he does? He blames the people, right? You know, don't, don't we do the same thing sometimes when we sin? Rather than take responsibility for what we've done, we start pointing the fingers at other people. And Saul does that. He says, the people were scattering, and you didn't come. I mean, do you hear what he's saying? Samuel, I mean, really, if, if you had just shown up on time, if you could be a little bit more you know, prompt in your scheduling, you know, get your pocket watch out, and, and you, you know what we arranged. You, you should have been here early rather than, you know, what, what's the phrase? To be uh, early is on time, to be on time is late, and late is something else. I don't remember what it was, but... You know, so Samuel starts cast, Saul starts casting the blame at Samuel. Don't you think that you share some of the blame, Samuel? You didn't come when the people needed you. Do you hear what he's doing? Next, he tries to justify himself and, and say that his sin was actually a good thing. We, we do that too, don't we? You, you sin against God, and then we start justifying and say, well, you know, maybe you know, this is kind of a good thing, really. You know, look at, look at what God's going to bring out of, uh, uh, from this. No, no, it's not the way it works. But Saul does that. He says, it was looking like the battle was imminent. And, and what's he say? We needed to ask for the Lord's favor. Doesn't that sound wonderful? 
I'm what a spiritual guy. We need to ask for the Lord's favor. And finally, he justifies himself saying, I forced myself. I did what God needed me to do. I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. And we do all those things, don't we? First, we allow the circumstances to control us rather than to walk in obedience. And when our sin comes to light, we often blame others. Sometimes we even try to make our decision uh, to disobey sound like it was actually not a horrible thing. And we are just as disloyal when we disregard the commands of the Lord that He's given to us in the Scripture. We are just as disloyal when we justify ourselves. When we do these things, like Saul, we treat God lightly. And He's our King. If, our, if He is our King, that, that is, is disloyal because He is holy and He's worthy of our obedient worship. And Saul didn't recognize that. There was a consequence, by the way, for Saul's disobedience. Samuel tells them, he says, you know, if you, if you would have obeyed in this, God would have established your kingdom. It would have been passed on from generation to generation. His kingdom could have been established and passed on to others, but instead, God announces to Saul that the kind of man that he's looking for who will rule under the Lord's kingship, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, is the key verse that we should pay attention to. He says, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So Saul's going to continue to reign for some time still. He's going to continue to fight Israel's enemies. He'll have some successes. He'll have many failures. But just like he's going to rule and fight the enemies, Israel's enemies just like the people wanted him to. And just like God warned, Saul is going to surround himself with strong men. He's going to take their sons. He's going to take their daughters. He, and, and they're going to serve in his entourage. But Saul's disloyalty comes to a climax in chapter 15. Some time has passed, and the Lord through Samuel commands Saul to wipe out the Amalekites and to wipe them out completely. God tells Saul that the time for the judgment of the Amalekites has come, and, and he's, he's even commanded to wipe out all the animals, even all the sheep. I mean, this is serious stuff. Some of you don't know. But I, um, I used to keep a couple interesting pets in our household. Uh, growing up, I, I thought that one of the coolest plants in the world is the Venus flytrap. I mean, how, how cool is that? You know, something lands on it and it eats it. And, and so I told my wife, you know, my dream to have a, a Venus flytrap someday. And, and uh, the amazing woman that she is, she bought me one as a gift one time. And, and I also told my wife at one other time that I thought one of the coolest animals in the world is a tarantula. I mean, it's a spider, but it's not a spider. You know, it's, just, it's big, but it, and it's cool, and they're fuzzy, and they'll let you pet them, and, and they'll know you. And, and um, being the amazing woman that she is, she bought me two as a, a couple of different gifts. One was a pink-toed Chilean, and one was a, one was a Chilean rose-haired. That was Babajan, we named her. I, I don't know if my wife realized at the time that she bought the tarantulas that they have a lifespan of 20 to 30 years. But Baba Jean, my pet spider, stayed with us. Uh, she had her little terrarium in our room in Colorado. We'd wake up in the middle of the night and hear something crawling on, on her little wall. Um, she came with us to Texas where she stayed in my office, and then she came with us to Iowa as well. We had Baba Jean as a pet for over 10 years. Uh, she was already 10 years old when we got her. Great pet. Loved Baba Jean. She was awesome. But I'll tell you what spider is not cool. 
black widows. There, there's one solution for those critters. Total extermination. I, I'm not going to let those things near my children. I'm not going to let those things near my family. If I see one in my house, that's it. That's, that's, and then we're going to fog the place. We're going to do everything we can to completely obliterate these spiders. They were to be devoted to destruction. And this is, this is the word that's used for the Amalekites. Extermination. These are the black widows of the Old Testament. God says they are to be devoted to destruction. Uh, the Amalekites were the tribe of people that came along when Isra the Israelites were leaving Egypt. And before Israel kind of found a way to order themselves and protect their people, uh, they learned that lesson from the Amalekites. Because while they were on their journey through the wilderness, um, some of the people were struggling behind. Guess who was struggling behind? The sick, the wounded, people who sprang their ankle, uh, the elderly. Uh, later on, they fixed that problem and put those people in the middle of the, of the tribes. But, but early on, those people fell behind. And the Amalekites came along and they attacked the stragglers. They started killing the elderly, the wounded. And God promised that the day would come when he was going to judge the Amalekites. The Amalekites are going to be a plague for, for uh, Israel in, for years to come. We might even see them in the book of, of Esther. Uh, one of their descendants might be. There's, there's theory that Haman uh, was a descendant of the Amalekites of King Agag that we're going to see here in the passage. That's possible. But the Amalekites are going to plague Israel for a long time. They were the black widows of the Old Testament. And you see, God could have sent fire. He could have sent a flood. They had opportunity to repent. They had opportunity to say, we're going to trust the God of Israel. And individuals could have, could have said, well, I'm, I'm going to abandon my people and I'm going to join Israel and worship their God. God could have judged them by some supernatural means. But in this instance, God says, Saul, I'm choosing you. And you are going to be the instrument in the army of, with the army of Israel to judge this people that I declared judgment on and prophesied judgment on hundreds of years before. And God can do that because he's God. And he sees all things and, and, and knows how all things work together. And I want to point out this passage, it doesn't give us justification to carry out our own vengeance. A lot of people read this and they go, oh, this is kind of weird stuff in the Bible. And surely there have been many horrible things that have been done throughout history because many ungodly leaders have, have taken passages like this and they've used their Bible to justify their own unjust wars for their own gain. And this here, though, was a specific commandment that God gave to Saul. And Saul was supposed to be the agent that would fulfill God's promise and exterminate the black widows of the Old Testament after hundreds of years of opportunity for them to do differently. Again, I've asked Andrew Vickers to come and read the second Scripture reading for us. Uh, you can stay seated where you're at, but as, there com as he comes up, uh, let me summarize just verses, what's happened in verses 1-16. through 16. Saul leads the people into battle. He defeats the Amalekites. Sounds like he's doing what God told him to do, right? But then there's something else that happens. He spares their king. He kind of Usually what they would do is they'd keep the king as a trophy and the king would eat scraps under the table. And so he spares Agag, the king. He spares the best of the oxen and the sheep. Verse 9 notes that he spared all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So Saul kept the best alive and once again showed his royal disloyalty. 
Saul again justifies his behavior as something good. He again blames the people. He even says, hey, we, we kept them to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I mean, we kept the sheep. Why? Well, because God likes sheep for sacrifices, and so obviously we would keep those for him. Notice that he doesn't say, however, the Lord our God. He says the Lord your God. And so Samuel says in verse 16, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. It's a bold point, isn't it? Rebellion is as, as, as the sin of divination. When we rebel, it's as evil as you playing with a Ouija board. Rebellion is, is the sin of divination. And he confronts Saul and, and tells him, you've been disloyal again. He, he was chosen. And God set him up for every success. But Saul did not exhibit what God said he was looking for. A man after my own heart. Instead, he did what was evil. He casts the blame on others once again. He justifies his disloyalty. But, but take note of the timeless declaration that Saul expressed there towards the end. Take note of what it shows about a king who is like the other kings of the nations. But, but also take note also of what it shows about our own hearts. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? That's a question. Does God delight in sacrifice? Well, yeah, He does. He's, he, he commanded it of the Israelites. Of course He does, but, but not as much as He delights in obedience. God is delighted when we choose to listen to His voice, and Saul didn't. Saul rebelled against his king. Saul was arrogant toward his king. And so God told Saul that because he had rejected God's command, the Lord was also rejecting Saul as king. You know, throughout the remainder of 1 and 2 Samuel, God is going to teach what it looks like when Israel's king rules under God's sovereignty. In the very next chapter, God's going to command Samuel to go and anoint the next king. And we're going to be introduced to David, who we'll look at next week. And that next king, he's also going to stumble, isn't he? I mean, there's some things David does you look at and go, wow, this is God's man? 
He made some huge mistakes, but the difference was, even though he made these enormous mistakes, whereas Saul was defined by his fear of the people, David is going to be defined by his pursuit of God's own heart. And every time that he made one of those enormous mistakes, you could see that David's heart was broken. He paid consequences for those mistakes, but his heart was broken over what had happened between him and his relationship with his Lord. And see, this is what God's intention was for Israel. That, that he would rule as their king. And that their human kings would operate under his sovereignty. And notice where God is leading Israel. And notice how this looks like something we've seen before. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, do you remember what God set up in the garden? What were Adam and Eve supposed to do? They were supposed to rule. You see, God had taken the very first king and, and queen... He set them up in the Garden of Eden. He also set them up for success. And they rejected God's story. But there God set up the first king and queen to rule over His creation under the rule of God. They were His viceroys, if you will. God was their sovereign and they were to rule as His representatives. We're going to watch how this plays out over the next few weeks. But, but think through me. Think, don't think through me. That's going to feel really weird. Think with me through the implications of what we learn from the life and disloyalties of Saul. Uh, first of all, uh, God has declared his royal priorities as he, as he, and, and, and he has still established what he is looking for in us. He's looking for men and women who are after God's own heart. When he was looking for a king, he was looking for a, a man that was after God's own heart. A king who would live by the guidance that was given by the Lord. A king who would be empowered by his spirit. A king who would show mercy and cause the people to rejoice greatly. We need to be careful not to confuse our own leaders with a king. I mean, we just had an election week, right? And it's tempting in weeks like this to uh, either rejoice over things that we shouldn't or to find ourselves in despair over things that we shouldn't. And sometimes we confuse our leaders with the kind of king that God calls is looking for. And, and yet, yes, God seeks men and women to lead who are in pursuit of his own heart. David was a man like that. But all of these leaders, whether they're kings of Israel or kings and rulers of our own nation, they're, they're going to sin. They're going to disappoint. They're, they're going to fail. And 1 Samuel points to the human leaders such as David, but, but know that God is also pointing beyond David to the son of David. The royal priorities that we, should, we, that we see here should cause us to long, not just for a human king like David, but a human king who is also God, the king of kings, the, the prince of princes, the prince of peace, the righteous one of Israel who will one day come and who will lead Israel, a God-man. He is the one that we long for, and He is the one in whom we put our hope. And in an amazing display of God's grace, He, he takes this and, and He goes a direction that, that the angels wouldn't have, wouldn't have expected. You see, this King, Jesus, who demonstrated such mercy that He died on the cross for our sins, this King has loved us, even, even us who are not Israel. And He fulfills God's promises. He shows us mercy. He forgives our sin, and then he, he one-ups it. He shares his inheritance with us, the church. 
Gentiles who have been grafted into the nation of Israel. And we're told that one day we'll return with him and we will rule with him. We will rule with Jesus. And so therefore, we also need to be people who share God's priorities. We need to be people who pursue his heart and who understand that obedience is greater than sacrifice. This obedience is demonstrated first and foremost when our faith rests in Jesus Christ. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and you are not resting your eternity, your salvation on the one who died in your place, then you are not in obedience. And you can do all kinds of things in serving your church and sacrificing in your life, but understand that God still values your obedience more than your sacrifice. There's nothing that you can do that can earn your salvation. And your obedience is first demonstrated first and foremost when your faith rests on Him who died for you. It's demonstrated when we receive salvation through faith and it's demonstrated when we continue to walk by faith as we follow King Jesus. As we walk by faith, might His priorities be our priorities. And may our hearts be ever in pursuit of His. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the lessons that we learn from these, these ancient saints these people who were called according to your purpose, a nation that you had called out from the nations to be a blessing to all. We thank you that we get to play a part in this as well. We thank you that under Christ, that we as those who are not part of Israel get to be a part of this incredible program, this incredible story in which you are accomplishing your purposes and you are showing mercy and you are lavishing your grace onto us. We thank you that we even get to participate in your future kingdom and rule with your son, Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly how that looks, Lord, and, 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 and what that will entail, but uh, you are amazing, and, and the way that you've orchestrated all of this is incredible. And so as we continue to live through this life here, as we continue to serve you, to walk, and as we follow Jesus Christ, our Lord, I, I pray that you would transform our hearts, that we would be people who would pursue your heart for your glory and your honor.